Hey guys, this is Ben. Just a quick announcement before we get started with the episode today. We're excited to announce that The Sound of IR is partnering with ISET this year, the International Symposium of Endovascular Therapy, which runs from today, January 27th through the 30th, to bring a whole bunch of exclusive content to you guys, our listeners. We have planned interviews with some of the keynote speakers and directors of the conference. We're hoping to be able to put out a lot of content over the next couple of days, interviewing a lot of people. We're very grateful to the team at ISET for allowing us to be there. And we hope that you, our listeners, will enjoy all the content we'll be putting out over the next week or two. I just want to personally thank all of our team members for putting in the time and effort to get to South Florida and also to all the members who couldn't make it who are putting in a lot of work on the back end for the Sound of IR team. I just want to thank all of our listeners for supporting us over the last year. And we have so many exciting things like all of the content we're doing at this conference and more coming to you over the next year. Thanks again. And here's the episode. Whether you're doing the cases you want or you're trying to build it up, you have to have the work ethic and the ability to have a conversation. And if you're not getting those or you're dealing with turf wars, then you figure out another avenue or you find another way to do it in a different job. I think if you have a passion for it, you have to find a way to do it. Welcome to the second season of The Sound of IR, a podcast that seeks to educate aspiring interventional radiologists about the clinical practice of IR. I'm Adam Swirsky, a third-year medical student at the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine. And I'm Ben Rausch, a fourth-year medical student at Western Michigan University, Homer Stryker, MD, School of Medicine. We work with a great team of students, residents, and attendings using the power of podcasts to explore topics in interventional radiology. As the hosts of today's episode, we hope you find it both educational and enjoyable. We're very excited to introduce this next episode of The Sound of IR, in which Dr. Mike Watts and Dr. Kumar Matasari will discuss critical limb ischemia with us. Dr. Mattisari completed medical school at Chicago Medical School and his diagnostic radiology residency and IR fellowship at Rush University Medical Center. And he's currently an assistant professor of vascular interventional radiology at Rush University Medical Center. And Dr. Watts completed his medical school at the University of Buffalo and, and his surgical internship and radiology residency at the Cleveland Clinic and his fellowship at the University of Pennsylvania. And he's currently an interventional radiologist at the PA Vascular Institute. So Adam, this discussion we just had with Dr. Watts and Dr. Mattisari on critical ischemia is one of my favorites from a clinical aspect. Yeah, absolutely. I think this episode is a great transition um, from the prior discussion we had with Dr. Mattisari in last season. And I think it, it kind of represents the evolution of our podcast now in that you know we're, we're moving away from, at least in this disease, um, you know, a discussion of the basic science and, and how things are done. This episode where we end up talking a lot about practice building um, and a lot about what actually you experience as an interventional radiologist in kind of a niche field, such as vascular disease and specifically critical hematemia. Absolutely. I think the way that both of them talked about this disease, like you said, it's different than than what we've talked about before with, you know, the basics of this is patency, this is, you know, stenosis and, and whatnot, and these are the treatment modalities. And it's more about what it's like as a patient, what it's like as a, as a physician trying to treat this disease. It definitely made me realize how important it is, the role, not just the interventional radiologists play in this disease, but everyone that's involved from the podiatrist to the cardiologist to the family practitioner to IR and vascular surgery and interventional cardiology. Absolutely. So we're lucky to have these two incredible um, guests and we hope you enjoy the episode. 
And before we jump into the episode, I do want to say as well, we mentioned this during the episode, if you haven't listened to our episode on peripheral arterial disease from last season, please go do so now. I'll make things a lot easier for you if you don't know the disease well, or if you just want to learn a little bit more about PAD before this episode. That's episode three of season one. Now for our interview with Dr. Watts and Dr. Mattisari. So Dr. Watson, Dr. Mattisari, thank you for coming on the podcast and agreeing to talk with us about critical limb ischemia today. Dr. Watts, since this is your first time on the pod, we'd love to know how you became interested in IR and what your journey was into the field of interventional radiology. Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, IR now with you know, the interest level and uh, the interest groups and what you guys are doing coming out of medical school, it's, it's tremendous. But, you know, when I was in medical school 12 years ago, you know, it, it really wasn't something that people were even aware of. So when I was in medical school, I was going to be an orthopedic surgeon. I was doing basic science research on PCL in situ tensions and, and all kinds of uh, esoteric stuff. But actually, it was my third year of medical school. I was in a pediatric rotation. There were two of us assigned to a hospital, which unfortunately generally had no kids. So you know, every, every morning, we would show up for rounds, and we would uh, practice fluid replacement equations and how much potassium to give a two-kilogram neonate. <laughs> and then you know we would just sit around and wait for kids to show up. And when they didn't, we'd be sent somewhere else. So, uh, you know, he'd go to lactation consultant or wherever else you could possibly go that had something to do with pediatrics. But after a while, the, uh, the attending would say, you know, go with a radiologist. And it was a tiny little hospital. And so these two guys, you know, probably mid forties, just, you know, just cool guys who, who would just sit in these really comfortable chairs and this really awesome room with computer <laughs> screens. And you know, they, would just, they would just kind of BS and they were having a good time and they would read uh, everything, you know, CAT scans, MRIs. And then every once in a while, someone would knock on the door and say, doctor, your procedure's ready. And they would walk in and do a central line or do a biopsy. And it just seemed like a really, really, you know, cool way to spend your day. So I kind of got into radiology like that. And I uh, ended up at the Cleveland Clinic, which was, you know, amazing experience for residency. And that's where I actually learned what IR was. I mean, it, you got thrown in really early on, you know, scrubbing into big cases and taking call, uh, even, you know, early, early on, first year with just you and attending. And, uh, you know, you'd be there till one o'clock in the morning doing cases. And it's just, you know, there's a feeling that's so much different from the rest of radiology, where, you know, you can scrub in and uh, just be isolated from everything else around you. So it's just you and the patient and whoever else is in the room. And, you know, you're not, you don't have to worry about your pager. You don't have to worry about what's going on. You don't have to worry about taking phone calls. And it's just a really kind of secure feeling of, all right, I have one job right now. It's to get this procedure done. Uh, and I have, you know, just can do what I have to do and do what I know how to do and not worry about anything else. And it just is a feeling that I didn't get in radiology. And it really kind of drew me to it. And that's kind of where I went from there, kind of a, a circuitous path. But hopefully now there's a lot more. You don't have to stumble into it as much and actually target it early on. And I think that a lot of the programs now are, are making that possible. Yeah, that's interesting, Dr. Watts, because that intimate setting that you talked about, of you and the patient, the way you express that is in a way that I'd heard explained previously by anyone in their journey to IR. Dr. Mattisari, is that something that you experienced when you you know, found IR in your path? I know we had talked about your path previously, but is that, is that feeling something that you had coming into it? Uh, first of all, thanks for having me and great to talk to everybody. I do think there's a lot of similarities in how a lot of us found IR. I mean, honestly, I think I, I iterated this in the past. I, 
I didn't know where I was until when I was a surgery intern in surgery residency planning. And they said, we know you like surgery, but you don't like what you're doing around here. Want to check out IR? And I had to ask them what IR was because I had no exposure. But what I did see, like probably some of the similar things with that Dr. Watsell was people just having a really good collegial experience and kind of just not as intense, but doing some pretty impressive things and just working hard, but having a good time. And I think that's what drew me towards it was the potential for the innovation and what all you could do that others could probably kind of stay away from and you would be able to, you know, take on. So that was very enticing for me. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. A lot of great points there from, from both of you that um, I think resonate with Ben and myself and other medical students listening to podcasts. First of all, that increasing exposure um, the more we learn about this field, the more we become interested in it. And um, so, again, we thank you for coming on today and, and sharing your, your insights. Dr. Watts, since, since we're meeting you for the first time here, what's your current practice setting and what types of cases do you usually see these days? Sure. So I have a somewhat of a unique situation. So, you know, I, I, was at, um, I was at Penn for four years after fellowship, just kind of doing a lot of, you know, general IR, really high-end stuff and working with fellows and and kind of doing the full gamut. And a lot of my responsibility was directing IR at the VA. And that's where I was able to kind of really take the the few things I had learned in fellowship about PAD and and CLI and apply them to patients that nobody else really wanted to treat. So I spent four years kind of doing a a self-apprenticeship, I guess, on CLI and PAD at the VA and really started doing a pretty high volume practice. So I ended up leaving there to join one other guy who had a full-time PAD CLI practice uh, that was all outpatient. So for the past three years, I have done nothing but basically CLI patients in outpatient settings. So ambulatory surgery centers where, you know, we kind of take all comers and most people are referred from podiatrists uh, with non-healing wounds, with Rutherford 4, rest pain, just diabetic ulcers. And then, you know, we, we follow those patients longitudinally sometimes for years and years and then are able to treat them as need be. So my practice uh, is what I think IR can really become, which is, you know, really being a physician for, you know, for, for these patients and that I prescribe longitudinal medication. So I'm, I'm prescribing Solosidol, I'm, I'm prescribing Plavix, I'm prescribing statins. And then these patients come to me for their vascular care. So I do a little bit of venous pathology for uh, non-healing ulcers, and, but that's about it. I mean, I, I really concentrate on doing, on doing CLI and uh, depending on the year, I'm doing anywhere between 500 and 700 cases you know, in, in outpatient wow. settings. So it's, it is a really unique situation, but it's, it's kind of all I do. So, so I have to ask, what led you specifically to this disease type? Was it something that you were interested in? Was it something you kind of fell into because of relationships with others? You know, I, I think through my fellowship and through my early years in attending, there was somewhat of a it's kind of a mystique, I guess, or, or, or some mystery surrounding PAD because, you know, you, you got this thing that someone always talked about. All the, all the old school attendings were like, oh, we used to do PAD all the time. PAD was an IR thing, but nobody does it anymore. You know, we, we lost it just like everybody else, however long ago. And it would be really great to do it again. But there was a, a very small practice kind of internal to us that we were doing a little bit. There was this mystique and this aura kind of about it that, that it's something that, man, if you could really be good at that, if you could learn to do it, you'd really set yourself apart. So that's what kind of got me turned on to it. 
And then when I started doing it, I realized that it's just plumbing. You know, there's, and, and that really appeals to me too. There's a problem and there are solutions. And, you know, there are solutions that are very routine, you know, uh, contralateral femoral access coming up and over, going down through an occlusion, anagrade, and, you know, angioplasty, stenting, whatever. Um, but then as you see, you know, on some of the, the Twitter posts from some, you know, from some of us, um, there's a lot of innovation because, you know, there's, there's just a plumbing issue that needs to be addressed and you have the tools and you know, the anatomy and, you know, you can just go for it. As I realized that, and I became much more comfortable innovating, I guess, and trying new things and, and pairing up with industry and, and learning some of the new devices. If there's just a lot, a lot of different ways to kind of skin the cat and do what you need to do to, to open up the, the block vessel and, and restore flow to wherever it needs to be. So mm. that's kind of my passion now. I get really excited thinking about the techniques we're going to employ or you know, having mm-hmm. some idea about how we're going to get through this lesion or past this problem uh, in a very kind of confined space, I guess. So I don't have to think about you know, what to do for biliary drainages with uh, isolated systems or that's not my problem. You know, my problem is to be the best I possibly can be at, you know, opening up tibial arteries. So that, that helps me. I really like that perspective that you have on the disease process. Dr. Watts, I want to get back into your experience with the VA a little bit later. Um, but before that, I want to talk to you, Dr. Mattisari, about your exposure to PAD, because I know your training at Rush was a little bit different than Dr. Watts's experience, correct? Uh, absolutely. You know, I was um, very fortunate that I was able to get actual training on PAD and CLI kind of extensively during the tail end of my residency and fellowship, thanks to uh, some great senior leaders that we have, and, you know, Buell and Arslan and Jenk Turb at my place. They, they kind of came to Rush while I was still a resident and they built up in a rapid fashion PAD aortas and specifically CLI just by kind of reaching out and taking on the tough ones and then quite in a rapid fashion building it up. So I was able to be beneficiary of that by quite a bit of extensive training in PAD, CLI, and aorta. So for me, it's similar to, you know, Dr. Watts, how it's a plumbing problem. And, you know, we have the tools, the the knowledge, the techniques every single day to tackle this. Not that anybody else can't, but this is literally all we do all day. So the tangible results that we, you know, we can achieve kind of in a rapid fashion for our time frame put into it. I think that's what drew me towards more PAD, specifically CLI. You know, as we kind of grew with CLI and learn about it, as we're all learning, we find out that, you know, we're barely touching the surface of patients actually getting diagnosed early and treated early and salvaged early. We're at the tail end of it still. So the fact that there's mm-hmm. so much more to do, so much more to learn about it, so much more innovation in it in one specific subset of a disease, you know, that's that's kind of what keeps me in CLI as a primary focus. Although, you know, at our place, we have to cover everything, obviously. Um, I'm waiting for Mike to hire me. Just kidding. <laughs> but, but no, I mean, uh, being able to focus on that as a, as, you know, especially I focus on it, it's kind of unique. But I really, I really am enamored by all the cases, the complexity of them, the, the failures that others have experienced. And when others give up, that you can be kind of a, a source of salvage. So to me, you know, that's kind of what's driven me in that PAD CLI spectrum. Awesome. Just for our listeners that might not fully understand CLI, we mentioned for all of our listeners to go back and listen to the PAD episode to get the basics. But Dr. Watts, just to get things started, can you explain the basics of CLI and the treatment modalities for critical limb ischemia? So just like you said, critical limb ischemia. So there's a, a spectrum of 
peripheral arterial disease. And, you know, whether you use the Rutherford classification or Fontaine or, or whatever it is, there's, there's, a, there's a spectrum that people don't necessarily follow linearly, but you can start with asymptomatic plaque in your arteries and go to different levels of claudication being, I can walk from here to X and then my calves start hurting and I have to stop. And that's, you know, peripheral arterial disease, intermittent claudication. That generally is not, you know, what we consider CLI. What we call CLI or where a limb is threatened. So that means um, a patient who has ischemic resting pain. So the blood is not sufficient to get to their lower legs and feet to you know, basically keep the foot alive. And so what that actually does is, you know, if you have uh, your foot raised up in bed, it hurts and it, it causes rest pain. It needs to be dependent, you know, dangle off the bed or uh, for gravity to help bring blood down. And then the, the spectrum beyond there goes to tissue loss. So diabetic ulcers, and these people, they generally don't have rest pain. Their nerves don't function well enough. They don't even know sometimes that they've had breaks in their skin, deep ulcers, sometimes that, that burrow all the way up to the bone, or, or gangrene of toes. These are people who have threatened limbs and who for years and years and years, you know, there's been the possibility of doing surgical bypass, but a lot of times that just bypasses femoropopliteal disease and doesn't get into the tibial arteries and, and it doesn't really improve the disease. And so amputation was always the treatment of choice. And I think that a lot of us now realize that amputation is, you know, not only a last choice, it's, it's a treatment failure. It means that you have not done enough uh, endovascularly or, you know, with creative and, and uh, complex surgical bypasses to treat the disease. That kind of gets into treatment modalities. I mean, what Kumar and I do is, you know, pretty much all endovascular. And then there are multiple uh, surgical treatments as far as bypasses go, distal bypasses. Um, you know, usually, if, you know, if there's a, a severe tibial pathology, the, the treatment modality of choices by the surgeons is to use a, a vein bypass, not use anything that's synthetic, and, and find a, a target uh, down towards the ankle to a, a, a patent artery. Um, you know, what we do a lot uh, depends on angiosomes, which is something that, you know, I think you kind of need to learn about as far as which blood vessel supplies which part of the foot. And then that's basic understanding. So if I have a, a plantar issue, a heel issue, or, a, you know, a second toe issue, which blood vessel do I need to open up? And as it gets to be a little bit more complex, you know, we're all starting to learn about um, the pedal loop and the, and the uh, you know, the, the really rich collateral network that happens in the foot and, and what we need to do to, to open that up with, you know, one, one and a half millimeter balloons and stuff like that. So, you know, again, just like there's a spectrum of disease, there's a spectrum of treatments. But as I alluded to earlier, this really needs to be managed medically. Medications are a huge part of this. That data comes out all the time that patients do better, live longer, have fewer amputations with statins. You have to understand blood thinners, whether they be kind of the classic traditional ones or the novel ones. And it really needs to be multidisciplinary. I mean, you really can't take on these patients yourself because you know, even if you are trained in wound care, you really don't have the time to do the revascularization, do the vascular evaluations, um, and have a high volume practice without podiatrists who are working with you for wound care. Um, you need sometimes plastic surgeons when these patients get really bad to get revascularizations and they need, uh, <laughs> you need something done. Um, and, and, you know, vascular surgeons to do bypasses, uh, to do amputations, you know, hopefully minor amputations, which is you know, basically uh, below the ankle which the patients still have good quality of life. So, you know, the, the treatment modalities, as you, as you mentioned, it's, 
it's really uh, interdisciplinary. It's um, you know multimodality in that it's you have to understand uh, lifestyle modifications. You know, obviously, stop smoking. Blood sugars need to stay down. Medications need to be arranged. Offloading of wounds. I mean, there's just so much involved that really need to be thought about before you even worry about the the endovascular treatments that we do. So. You know, you can see why it's something that you really need to specialize in. If it's, if you're gonna, you can't just dabble in it. There's too much to think about. So that's my my kind of CLI in a you know in a, in, a, in a nutshell, I guess. I like that because I think it's one of those things in in the world of interventional radiology where you really become the primary physician for that disease. Correct. And there's an overall effort in IR to become more of a physician, more of a clinician. But I think peripheral vascular work is an area where IR can already be at the forefront of that. One other question I have kind of regarding what you just mentioned is that, you know, you mentioned that obviously in PA and CLI, the risk factors for these diseases, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, diabetes, things like that, they're the same for coronary artery disease. And so these patients are coming into you with their leg problems and stroke as well. Are you talking to your patients and, and aware of the management of these comorbidities as well? Is that something you face on a daily basis? I think it depends on how you practice in your specific environment. But, you know, I think the fact that there's so many commonalities in these disease processes, you have to have an awareness. I, you have to either have a good awareness of what at the minimum they should be kind of being treated with, who's evaluating them for us. I mean, we have a great relationship with cardiology, vascular surgery. So there's a patient that, you know, has other issues that we need to be aware of. We do follow them and make sure that they have a general cardiologist that's following them for any of the other uh, issues with their heart. Uh, we keep on top of that. We're able to communicate effectively through the EMR and through, you know, just talking to each other. So I think it depends on where your practice pattern is. And Dr. Watts can probably allude to what happens when you're kind of in a strictly outpatient setting. And I think it's still nowadays very, very possible, but you should have a knowledge of the medical management of a lot of comorbidities when you're dealing with a patient that's so complex, like critical ischemia patients. And, you know, Dr. Vodakin Chariot and Kaiser is a fantastic <laughs> example of how to practice global medicine on your IR patients. I mean, I think that's a that's an idol to, to follow in that kind of management. I don't think I'm anywhere near that, but luckily I have a lot of specialists to talk to all the time and it can help. Yeah, I think um, bringing up Dr. Vatican Cherry is good. He's someone that sometime this season of the podcast, we'll be having him on to talk about clinical IR. But just to share a quick story on a critical limb ischemia patient, I rotated at Kaiser this summer in interventional radiology, and he'd have us in clinic with him. And I remember a specific patient coming in who he had that patient bring their steps that they'd done from like their Fitbit or something else like that. And so he'd, he'd be checking on them. He'd be saying, hey, you got 10,000 this day or 20,000 or, you know, let's, let's try and see if we can get it up for two weeks from now, you know. And I was just so impressed how much he cares about his patients and their overall uh, medical picture. The only thing I can add is, is um, kind of in, in my situation where we're more or less independent practitioners, you always kind of have an eye out for where is your business coming from and where is your business going. So if we have vascular labs, we have ultrasound techs in all of our centers and we, we follow our own patients with ultrasounds and anybody who has risk factors, which is basically everybody, we'll get a baseline carotid ultrasound, then we'll follow it up based on what we find, you know, either six months or a year. And when they get to something that, you know, needs to be evaluated, we send them off to the vascular surgeon, the same vascular surgeon who sends us patients and, and who helps us out. And if we have a patient, they come in and refer to us from, say, a podiatrist, they don't realize that they have um, 
peripheral arterial disease or coronary artery disease. And we kind of make those diagnoses. Um, you know, we send them off to cardiologists who in turn send us their patients uh, who they're seeing for their heart and they realize they have PAD. So just by, you know, working together, it's, it's a constant source of referrals and, and it really does kind of the, the engine going as far as getting new patients and, and helping the patients as best you can uh, to make sure that all the bases are covered. So it's, it's kind of a double benefit for our patients where, you know, they can come to us and get their imaging done. We happen to be radiologists, which is great. And then, you know, if there's anything that, that needs to be treated, we have a, a great referral network. That's awesome. So I want to, we've realized a lot of our listeners are interested in how, you know, there, there's a myriad of different ways to practice IR. And there's a, there's a lot of different ways as well to build up your practice. So first, Dr. Watts, I want to ask you a little bit about the practice that you're a part of. Mm-hmm. And then Dr. Mattisari, I want to go back and ask you some questions as well about, you know, how you saw that the rush vascular practice kind of. So Dr. Watts, you said, you know, you came into a situation with your current practice where you were joining a partner mm-hmm. and you work in OBLs or office-based labs, ambulatory surgery centers. Correct. Can you give us a little bit more detail about how that system is set up and what your interplay is with, you know, different specialties or, you know, you, t- you touched a little bit on that, but more from the business side. You know, I think that there's a completely different mindset when you're in a hospital where you are waiting for referrals to come and doing what's on the board and finishing your day rather than when you have to build your business you know, you really do need to have some sort of outreach in place. So, you know, I think the successful groups uh, realize that it's, it's a monetary investment and, you know, you need personnel. So you need someone who's good at forming relationships, talking about a practice, sometimes, you know, cold calling, knocking on doors and, and working relationships. So, you know, we have full-time people who spend their time kind of marketing us. We'll do, you know, lunch, kind of lunch and learn type things. And then when they find an interesting group, they'll say, hey, I got to have you come out with my doctors. We're going to go do dinner. And then we sit down and we talk. The issue is a lot of independent practitioners, whether they be podiatrists, cardiologists, family practice docs, they're independent and they need a vascular place to refer. For the most part, they're sending their patients to, quote unquote, the hospital, whatever, whatever and wherever that hospital is. And a lot of times they don't see those patients back. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the benefit we have is, A, we do outstanding work. We get the patients in within 24 or 48 hours. Uh, we do the patient outpatient setting. They have a very pleasant kind of high touch experience, uh, very good safety outcomes, very good um, procedural outcomes. And I'm going to call the doctors back and I'm going to tell them, hey, this is what we did. This is how everything went. Thanks for the referral. And then it just keeps conversations going. So there's a, a lot more you know, kind of being your own advocate and, and, and as well as paying other people to be your advocates for you, that keeps business going, but it's got to be a constant outreach or else, you know, relationships are going to fall, you know, kind of fall by the wayside or, you know, you're, you're just not going to get the, uh, the, the job done. Um, and, you know, it means screening patients too. So, you know, I think, you know, if a podiatrist, you know, has any concern um, and you have a relationship with them, you're willing to, you know, go to their office or have somebody go to their office and do an ABI and do a PVR and say, yeah, we can, we can help you with this patient. Yeah. It's a lot more labor intensive, I think in a lot of ways. And, uh, you know, I'm not on call at night for this practice, but you know, there may be give talk somewhere to a group or I'll go out to a dinner and, um, yeah, it doesn't sound terrible, but, uh, you know, it's time away from your family and for sure it's, it's a lot of, it's a lot of work. So it's just a different experience, but I mean, it's, it depends on how you like to work, I guess. 
Yeah, that's interesting. So Dr. Mattisari, your experience, like you said, you were a resident as that practice at Rush sort of became a real vascular practice. So what was your experience with that? What did you see as that practice developed? And now that as an attending, you know, as you guys have continued to develop your practice? You know, I think there's a lot of corollaries to what uh, Dr. Watts was saying. You know, whether you're an academic, part private or completely out there, there's an element of building relationships in this uh, IR field that you that we have to teach our trainees and everyone to kind of to adapt because you know doing a vascular practice in an academic center like us, it's a similar process. We go, we talk to our podiatrists, our vascular surgeons. We have journal clubs with them, and you know, and for us, the benefit is that we have a lot of trainees of all specialties, so we can host journal clubs where we talk about articles together. We have uh, a conversation. We go to their practices in their office and their clinics and we talk about to our podiatrists, you know, things that we can do for their patients, help them see their patients together. Even though it's an academic center, we have trainees that we can help teach together. We have them work together and learn from each other, see cases together. And so we are building similar relationships. It's just the 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 levels of people that we're doing with are a little bit different in the academic setting, but it's the same, it's the same qualities you have to be able to uh, espouse. Uh, to build a practice in any one of those fields. You know, we have an outpatient practice that's part of our system that we have to see patients. We have to communicate directly. We have to send, you know, pictures to them immediately after the case. I like to do that all the time to my referrers. I send them a picture with circles of what was before, what's missing, what's now, or what the plan is. So I don't think it's, you know, it's not too far different. Uh, Day to day, it's a little different, but it's the same aspect you have to, you have to develop of how do you whether it's PAD, whether it's CLI, or many of the myriad of other things that we do in IR, whenever you're building something that you're focusing on, you have to use the same principles of direct communication, availability, responsibility, and kind of just taking care of the patient and letting them know that, like like Mike said, you know, we're going to give you a patient back in a better condition than you sent it to us, but you're still going to get the patient back. We'll just be a partner in the process. I think that's awesome. Um, and I, it's something we talk about on the podcast a lot with the different diseases we've covered. You know, obviously IR is at the center or the periphery of a lot of different diseases and specialties, depending on which, which way you look at it or, or who you are in, in medical profession. But I think it's this disease specifically um, can sometimes be looked at, you know, when I'm when I seem by myself in medical student introduction to IR lectures, there's always one or two people who, who like to ask about the relationship between vascular surgery and IR. Um, and now, you know, with, with prostate artery embolization, IRs need to form relationships with urology groups and other things like that. So I think it's really cool to see that um, one thing that makes a good interventional radiologist, somebody who can form relationships, maintain them, and continue to build them. I think PAD and CLI is something that's changed. From what I'm hearing, it seems to have changed over the years. And now, under the leadership of guys like you, it seems to be headed in the right direction. No, Adam, I think it's a great point. You know, I think everyone, not everyone forgets, but we always bring this up. You know, the first ever uh, lower extremity angioplasty was done by an IR daughter. And the the nature of our, our IR field at that time just did not permit development of a clinical practice, which is the complete opposite right now. That's what we're, that's where we're putting our money on right now with the new training programs and residencies that we're developing clinicians. And I think, you know, thanks to, you know, Mike and, some of our leaders ahead of us, even you know, far older than us, even though Mike's very old, is that <laughs> just kidding. Just because that they they helped they helped develop this notion, and they were kind of few and far between. But they developed this uprising that we're seeing now in IR of 
training highly clinically oriented people that all of them want to go out and try to figure out how to do this. And, you know, it's our responsibility to set an example and teach them how to do that. And we have to, we have to learn from our other colleagues and our other specialists who do this already and have been trained on this. And I think we're in that upward swing of that process right now. So whether you're doing the cases you want or you're trying to build it up, you have to have the work ethic and the ability to have a conversation. And if you're not getting those or you're dealing with turf wars, then you figure out another avenue or you find another way to do it in a different job. I think if you have a passion for it, you have to find a way to do it. Yeah, that's really well put. And that's a really good natural segue to talking about IR education and peripheral arterial disease. So I know... There's institutions like your own, Dr. Mattisari, and others where that is integral to the training. And there's other places where it has fallen by the wayside. So I want to ask you specifically, Dr. Watts, you mentioned that during your fellowship, you couldn't sort of created or or were put in a position of uh, uh, at the VA creating this vascular um, sort of practice. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and and how that occurred? Because I know a lot of residents I've talked to on the interview trail have said their only PAD experience comes at the VA. I don't know if that's just because right. vascular surgeons don't do endovascular work at the VA or, or what, you know, why that is nationally, but that's a very common sentiment I've heard on the interview trail. Yeah. When I first started, so, you know, I, I did my fellowship at Penn and Tim Clark was there doing some CLI stuff, you know, few and far between, but he, you know, he was definitely a bit of a, a mentor because he was very active about reaching out and getting patients. So he would find patients, you know, at, at, you know where, that, that he would treat and he really had to work hard for them. So I, I knew it had to be, you know, it's kind of how he had to do mm-hmm. things. So when I started my job the following year at the VA, I met with the podiatrists, you know, basically immediately. And I, I showed them some cases that I had done with Tim. And, uh, you know, there may have been three cases that were kind of, you know, tibial angioplasty, limb salvage kind of cases. And they were just blown away. Um, they said, you know, we've been looking for someone, you know, to do this stuff for years. Because I, I think, you know, I, I don't want to generalize, but the VA, you know, there's a lot of good reasons to transfer your practice to a VA when you're near retirement. <laughs> let's put it that way and so I think a lot of the surgeons who may have you know had very busy practices academic practices for a long time uh you know they slow down a little bit and they go to the VA and they they you know kind of build their pensions and uh, there's not really a lot expected of them uh and they really don't have to do much um you know except for some some critical things that need to be done and uh you know, they have uh, either either kind of uh, advanced practice nurse practitioners or PAs or sometimes residents who run clinics and just run things by them. And they, um, you know, they can sign their notes. And, uh, you know, it's a lot of, uh, you know, CTA, SFA occlusion, claudication. All right, so all in walking program and see them back in six months. Um, and, you know, a lot of times these patients will, you know, kind of slip through the cracks with CLI or they'll, they'll, they'll worsen or they'll get super frustrated because they try to walk uh, and they can't do it. And, uh, you know, they, they, the VA is a very kind of tight knit hospital. So um, they're, it's a relatively small patient base. They all kind of see the same doctors and they, they, they talk about things with other doctors. So they go to the podiatrist and say, man, I've been trying to get, you know, my leg fixed because I can't walk. Um, you know, and while they're getting their toenails clipped, they'll say, Hey, I want you to go see this IR guy who gave us a, a presentation. Um, and it kind of started like that. And then once the results started being, uh, you know, being 
good, I guess. Is, that's the best adjective I can come up with right now. Um, the vascular surgeons kind of noticed and said, hey, you know, tell, tell the nurse practitioners, the PAs, the residents, when they have a patient who needs endovascular intervention, send them down to IR. Um, you know, they'll do the procedure and we'll admit them overnight and, uh, you know, the patient will be better off for it. And that's, that's kind of how, how we grew, which, you know, is, is similar to how we do things now, you know, reach out to the podiatrist, say, Hey, you know, we're happy to do this for you. If you don't have anybody else or you're not happy who, who you're with, give it a shot and see what happens. If I can segue that for a second, when I was at Penn, you know, I was the, the fellowship director, uh, for IR as we transitioned into the residence. Mm-hmm. So there were, I think, eight programs who had their IR integrated residencies approved on the first round, and we were one of them. So I, I wrote that program for Penn. You know, I was at all the meetings, you know, the APDIR meetings for program directors and talking about, you know, how we're going to do this. And, and one of the pillars of the, of the IR residency was a, a real meaningful vascular experience. Mm. So I was lucky that I said, look, we're doing, you know, a hundred plus cases every year at the VA. Tim Clark's doing, you know, the same amount of cases at, at Presbyterian. We have a really significant IR experience. And of the other programs that were kind of contemporary programs building their residency, a lot of them didn't have that. So, you know, and there was a serious push that said, look, you can't just say, uh, our residents will, uh, you know, rotate with some outside cardiology group and get training. You know, there was a real serious push to say, look, I need a plan. You know, how, how many cases are they going to see? Who's going to oversee it? How is it going to get checked? So right when this residency started, it was very clear that this being an IR clinician and understanding vascular disease was going to be a, a real um, pillar of it. And then, uh, you know, as soon as we got approved and kind of had our first class matched, I ended up leaving. So, um, you know, unfortunately, I didn't get, get to follow that through anymore. Um, but I, I know, um, you know, Kumar is probably involved in some of that education now, but as we had, did talk about the, the education that's involved and, and how it's kind of changed, you know, I think that the design of the IR residency really is to get everybody involved at a significant level, which I appreciate, I think is, is a, is a really good, um, target they've set. Yeah. A follow-up question for both of you. I've seen a lot of places where, you know, you'll spend a certain amount of months with vascular surgery and that's the only PAD or CLI experience you get. Do you feel like in those situations there's something lacking or, or an experience that you're not able to have because there isn't that IR, PAD, CLI experience? I do think that's an issue. And the reason I think that's an issue is I think vascular surgeons, you know, do a great job with PAD and with, and with CLI, but because of their skill set and because of their training, uh, they have different options, mm. right? So, so when you're coming out of IR and you're spending your time in vascular surgery, you know, if, you know, if, you, if the, the, the decision is all things being equal, we can do a bypass or do an endovascular repair, you know, you're going to make your decision differently. And then if your experience as an IR resident is with the vascular surgeons, well, you're not trained to do the cut downs. You're not trained to do, you know, the tunneling, the bypasses, the anastomosis. You don't have your own set of loops. So you're really not getting the same training that you would if you are a vascular surgery or surgery resident or fellow who has that skill set to bring with you to that rotation. You're, You're basically doing that rotation with, you know, one hand tied behind your back because, you know, when it's, when there is a treatment to be performed, you may or may not ever be able to do that because that's not your specialty. So I think you're, you're hamstrung a little bit in that. 
Um, and, you know, we've actually uh, had a lot of conversations with different programs and with different uh, um, just kind of governing bodies about getting uh, IR residents and fellows to rotate with us um, as kind of an outpatient experience really extremely high volume outpatient experience. I mean, we can get some, we can get somebody in, you know, probably 50 cases a month, um, you know, if they're willing to travel a little bit, but it's just, it's just a really, really difficult situation um, as far as ACGME and, and local GME offices yeah. licensing. It's a, it's a lot of, it's a lot of problems that hopefully, you know, we can kind of come across. I know as um, part of the uh, SIR PAD service line, we've touched on it a little bit just to try to get as much experience as possible. So we do realize that there are limitations. And I think just being with vascular surgeons, you can be exposed to some things, but it's not the same as working with IRs. What do you think, Dr. Mattisar? You know, I think, uh, unfortunately, like we're talking about, this is a developing process in, in terms yeah. of increasing training in PAD, CLI, and, you know, even aortas and all that. I think yeah, as a trainee, it's a difficult spot to be in. You know, how do you ensure you get the training if that's what you're interested in? But you know, I'd like to point out that if you're in, if you're in a surgical field, everywhere you go may not have the best type of certain types of surgery, true types of you know focus because we're talking about a subset of a specialty right now. Mm-hmm. So I think as a trainee, it's kind of hard to say, well, you know, you're going to learn this, you have to push for it. No, you have to kind of seek out the programs if that's what you truly feel you're passionate about. The good thing is that if you go to a good training program, whichever one that is, you will have the basic skill sets far better than most other specialists to tackle this once you start learning it. Mm-hmm. So I don't think it's necessarily a disadvantage. It is a disadvantage we don't have enough programs yet, but that's what we're hopefully working on. I do see a lot of younger IRs out there now who are starting to do PAD and CLI at their own practices and academic centers that they're trying to bring it in themselves. So I think in the next, you know, five years or so, we're going to see a lot more centers that are training that will have this. Meanwhile, that's something you're interested in. Just like if you're interested in, you know, oncology, you'll probably focus on some of the training programs that have a heavy interventional oncology practice. Yeah. I think that's what we're going to see. And eventually, I think we'll get to the point of having IR subspecialty fellowships and specialized training. You know, we're one of the only centers, I think, not to toot it, but we just have the space for it that has an extra year of fellowship for people who want to focus on PAD aortas and CLI. Um, it's a you know it's actually a fellowship, and we have people that apply for it. We need a lot more of those, and we need training programs to have to develop the volume to help cover all these subsets of IR. We're not there yet, but I think as trainees, if that's something you're interested in or you're already developing a passion for and you're learning, you know you can go to a place that does have that. There are there are you know there's a, there's enough out there that are starting to do it, and enough out there that do have a lot of it. We just got to seek them out and try to focus on that. Yeah, that's interesting. So I guess we can transition into a little bit um, more of the education side of things. We've talked a lot about um, training pathways and and what the future holds. Um, So something I've noticed from uh, going to certain conferences like SIR um, and ICIT even, which was a a pretty cool one with a multidisciplinary approach to vascular disease. There are are newer conferences and you can see on Twitter, um, such as uh, the AMP Symposium, um, and other CLI, PAD-focused conferences, where I imagine you guys are having conversations similar to this one about um, what the future of IR is in vascular disease. So what are some of the newer things, if we haven't mentioned them already, that that are coming out of these um, high-level conferences? You know, out of the, I mean, I think, are, are we talking about IR-specific conferences first, or are you talking about... 
Yeah, but AMP is more of a multidisciplinary. Before before we hit AMP and all that, let's talk specific to like in your practice, Dr. Messer, Dr. Watts, in the last year, what have you seen change in interventional radiology when it comes to PAD and CLI? Have there been changes in the literature and devices used in the last year? I think as Dr. Watts, uh, Mike pointed out earlier, you know, our our aggressiveness and how far we're going down the uh, foot has changed drastically. And that helps because we have, you know, we are getting smaller and smaller balloons. I think uh, Mike was talking about it. I mean, we have one millimeter balloons that a few have now. We're focusing on arteries of the pedal loop. We're talking about sometimes, you know, parcel arteries. So I think our aggressiveness, thanks to having lower profile tools, lower profile atherectomy, um, has really changed significantly in the last few years. Mike can probably allude to more of that. And we have newer stents that are coming out now that we can put in the tibials that are indicated for it that are coming out now that are drug eluding, which we can talk about in a little bit, which is that's a hot topic. I think the the tools that are equipment that are coming out and our aggressiveness and willingness to to do whatever it takes to, you know, I, in my practice, and I think Mike's too probably, to get a direct blush to the wound, that's kind of our goal in CLI nowadays, which is different than what it used to be years ago, which was mm-hmm. just some flow below the knee. Now it's if I don't see that hyperemic blush by that wound, then I don't feel I've done a, you know, a sufficient job to heal that. So our expectations, our aggressiveness, and our tools have kind of allowed us to kind of get a little bit uh, further ahead nowadays. And, I, and Mike, whatever you think. Yeah, I, th- I think that's all kind of extremely well put. And, and I agree with all of that. I, I, I kind of would um, say that you know the, the mindset, I think, like you mentioned, is is changing a little bit. Um, and we've even, talking about the Peter Loop, we've even gone a little away from angiosomes because angiosomes, you know, have been kind of the dogma for a couple of years. And now we're, we really are looking for, you know, direct flow of the wounds as we can get to smaller and smaller vessels. Um, and I think that that comes from a lot of multidisciplinary discussions. So, you know, when you have vascular surgeons, you have IRs, you have cardiologists who all have different experiences um, and, and different perspectives on, on wound healing and, and flow and anatomy, uh, that's where we start talking about the importance of the pedal loop. We start, you know, talking about outcomes with different, you know, with, with different interventions. Uh, and so I think that's changing a little bit as the devices, the devices are kind of being tailored a little bit more to what the newer mindset is. And it really is being more aggressive and, and going directly for, you know, what needs to be treated. Um, and then, you know, the, the drug eluding technology is going to continue to improve, you know, because right now, you know, you put a bare metal stent in somebody, you're not really doing them a favor. You know, it's, it's going to re-stenose, it's going to be a problem, and then you're going to have to deal with it later on. You know, maybe the wound will heal if that's the issue, but then they're stuck with it. So the, the drug eluding stents, drug-coated balloons are having better patency, and they continue to get better and better, but there are concerns about the safety of those, um, you know, which we're worried about now. So, Things will continue, and it really does take you know kind of all specialties uh, and and with their experiences and perspectives to get together and talk about it. It can't really be an IR centric thing. So when you're at an IR only meeting, you know you can basically the best you can do is bring ideas that you get from some of these other multidisciplinary meetings and try to educate you know the IRs that hey, there's a whole world out there that that is outside of us that is different from us. Um, that we really need to be a part of, um, or we'll, or we'll be left behind, which I think is kind of, you know, the idea of, of like the AMP symposium and some of the other ones. So let's talk about AMP. I think that 
at least a lot of medical students interested in IR who've been on Twitter might have seen this fall um, mention of AMP Symposium. And, you know, Adam already mentioned it. Can can both of you talk a little bit about what what um, was discussed at AMP this year, sort of um, broad overarching topics and, and what the big takeaways were? Yeah, I guess briefly, you know, my my takeaway from it really was kind of the, the tagline that actually developed was leave your specialty at the door, hmm. right? It was, we, we all have our own experiences. We, we all kind of have the same goal and we all have to work as a team. And it doesn't matter, you know, if you're an IR cardiologist, cardiologist or a vascular surgeon, you know, we're all trying to do the same thing. Uh, and we're all going to put our heads together and we're all going to talk about what we know and bring it to the table, whether, you know, it's, it's outcomes, it's anatomy, it's, it's experiences, it's techniques, and whether it's from the actual techniques that, that people are doing procedurally or, or the patients that they're treating or um, even the facilities, how they're doing it, how, what their wound care team is. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of wound care focus because there's a lot of podiatrists at the meeting as well. Yeah. So it really is about how we can prevent uh, amputation and limb loss and, and working together. And I know that when Kumar was able to show up to some of the conferences, <laughs> I'm kidding, he was actually attending very well, but he probably got a lot of the same take-home points, but I'm sure he picked up some other things. He's a little bit smarter than I am and gets some of the, the, <laughs> the, the more intricate details. I think those of us in PAD and CLI that are focused on it, you know, going to these other meetings are very important because you know it's not a single society that's running this disease. It's multiple ones. And what we will find when you look into this and these conferences is that we're kind of behind the eight ball in terms of number of conferences dedicated to this. You know, it's nice that we go to this, uh, me and Mike, we're both at the AMP meeting and it's, you know, a lot of interventional cardiologists, vascular surgeons. And, you know, I think we need to be present at those meetings. We need to be a contributor. We need to be on the podium. We need to be an active participant. That's how we all work together and learn together. And what you'll realize is that you know, we're barely touching the surface of reaching patients that have this disease. Instead of battling for the few, there's millions that aren't being touched. Yeah. We work together to develop strategies and understanding of how do we improve outreach. Of course, the greatest thing in the world would be to prevent PAD, but we're not there. We're behind the eight ball. We got to catch all these people that are going to lose their limbs first while we work on, while we have our other colleagues help us with working on preventative medicine. But Right now, the reality is that tons of people aren't even being touched, especially in rural areas. You know, and that's something we're learning at these meetings and we're learning by working together, we may have a better uh, success at this rather than kind of worrying about just you know, individualistic specialties. But you know, I, I think that's something I learned from these meetings and you know, we're part of it. SIR, you know, Mike's part of that service line. Uh, you know, we're bringing a LEARN meeting is coming back, which is a PAD-focused meeting for SIR that uh, yeah. I'll, be, I'll be helping organize for next year. So that's going to come back. And I think those are things we have to, you know, participate in, be a, be a part of it. And also we have to go to other meetings like myself and Mike do. I should mention for our listeners, AMP is the Amputation Prevention Symposium. It was held last year in August, if I remember correctly. Yeah, it's held every year in Chicago. It's primarily run by an uh, interventional cardiologist named uh, Jihad Mustafa from Michigan and Fadi mm-hmm. Sabah and these other uh, great leaders in critical limb ischemia uh, interventions. And they're very... All of them are very approachable and very great to work with as a multidisciplinary meeting. Awesome. Agreed. Extremely welcoming to everybody. Um, it's just a great atmosphere. It's a lot of you know, collaboration. So it's, it's, a, it's a great meeting to go to. While we're talking about meetings, you mentioned LEARN, which that's really exciting that you'll be helping put that together. Because like, I know I've heard a lot of people mention how much they liked that in the past. So is there any details you can give us about 
when that will be or what that will be like? Details are still being finalized. It's going to be next fall and we'll, you'll send the information will be sent out shortly. But I think it's really exciting because, you know, I think Mike can attest to this. For a lot of us, we've been kind of uh, beating our leadership uh, virtually saying we really need more IR focused PAD CLI, uh, you know, uh, courses, training, something from our society that supports this, even though they do support it, but kind of bring back these kind of dedicated meetings for, because it is a special, you can run like a week long meeting alone just for us on BAD. For sure. Yeah. And you, you see the core of us kind of on Twitter, you know, all IRs who, who do this, you know, pretty extensively. I mean, there's, there, there's the experience, the knowledge to pass along. And, you know, if you don't know where to find us, I guess it's, it's very difficult. So having that, that meeting, which Kumar is, involved in planning and I'm waiting for my invitation. Um, you know, it's, 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 it's a great more public way to go about passing this knowledge along to people who really could use it. Yeah. And I know in my experience, and I'm sure Adam, it's been the same for you. You know, when I first got interested in an IR, I've talked about this on the pod before, uh, you know, I got onto Twitter and found a lot of IRs on Twitter. And I'd say the, the vast majority of you guys on Twitter are those, like you said, that are very active in the, in the PAD world. Um, you know, which is how obviously I came in contact with both of you. Yeah, I mean, Twitter's open. You know, Twitter and the other, and mostly Twitter, I'd got to say, has developed quite a bit of a interesting, I think, uh, outreach for IR to kind of present themselves, but also from you know, all subsets of IR too, not just yeah. PDI, but that's just something that I think a couple of us tend to try to do more of because we find that there's so much disconnect from everybody else. And mm-hmm. I think what we learn is that you know, initially we wrote a paper on this too about using Twitter for. Uh, IR, but it's that we thought getting patient outreach to Twitter would be the greatest thing in you know that we can do for him. What we learned is that I think teaching our own other medical colleagues about what we do is actually a bigger benefit. <laughs> At yeah. least we have discussions and kind of having a little bit of uh, back and forth with other specialists is kind of interesting. Um, we try to keep it peaceful, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know. But I think we're all learning from each other, and we've all we've created a bigger network of friendships. Actually, uh, that's what I've got to say from it. For sure, I agree with that. So you mentioned you mentioned writing a paper, which is a good transition to um, another question. And we have is that what is what's the current literature like, and you know what what are the current research goals for this disease? Um, you know, are there registries and 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 things, you know, outcomes we're specifically looking at to improve CLI treatment? There are PVI registries that you can be a part of. Um, there's other registries that other uh, physicians and hospitals have started. I don't know how Mike feels about it, but one of the biggest issues we have, I think, in PAD and CLI is there's no there's no system to uh, certify or review and peer review and blinded review of what people are doing out there, actually. So mm-hmm. in a lot of places, you know, when a physician, when a referrer sends a patient, they get back what they get back if they get it back, and they assume that that's the best that's done. We know, me and Mike and many others know very well from all specialties that Everybody who does interventions aren't always achieving the same or using the same kind of approaches. So I think one of the biggest things we're lacking is kind of a global, you know, centers of excellence or, you know, peer reviews to kind of make sure people are doing it are doing it the right way um, with good outcomes. So I think that's one of the biggest lacking parts. The biggest focus is going to be uh, limb preservation and, you know, lack of reintervention. That's kind of the goal, avoiding major amputation. So um, Mike can probably allude to more of that, but I think we're far away and we're trying to all work on it in terms of how do we make sure that when a patient goes somewhere, they're getting the best care. And if not, are they being referred to, you know, we need to treat it like oncology. You have to have 
you have to have a second and tertiary referral sometimes. That's a great point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah I'll, I'll take a slightly different angle to that. You know, Kumar and I are both involved in CLI Global Society, which is something you should check out. Yeah. Um, but one of the one of the big issues that that we're kind of looking into is that there's no ICD-10 code for CLI. It, as as an actual uh, CMS Medicare type um, diagnosis, it doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. So to be able to really do good research that's, you know, basically you can, you can generalize, you need codes that you can search for and say, all right, CLI patients, how are they treated? What were their outcomes? And you really can't do that if there's not a code for it. So that's severely lacking. Um, and then some of the other kind of activism involved with that um, is standardization of what, what is being done. So there's a position paper basically um, that says before you do an amputation, you know, <laughs> there needs to be a real angiogram done. Mm-hmm. And what's a real angiogram? It's an arterial study uh, done of the ipsilateral limb with uh, a catheter placed beyond the common femoral artery, uh, you know, down to the popliteal artery if you're doing, um, you know, for, for the tibial runs, and you're doing a real honest evalu- evaluation of what the blood supply is to a limb rather than, you know, just kind of treating without, without really knowing what the blood supply is uh, and how treatable it is. So there's some activity going on through societies like this where we are trying to standardize things, but we're really kind of behind the eight ball where we're not able to classify a lot of this because it's still such a under-recognized disease when it comes to the, the national powers that be. Uh, so hopefully that changes and then, you know, we can really start measuring outcomes better, which will really help us do all of the different uh, studies that are being done. You know, that, that's a big issue that we're dealing with, let alone just, you know, which devices work better, which stents are better, what has better patency, Correct. and arguing whether, you know, a uh, 4 or 9% patency from one stent to the other is, is significant. <laughs> when we aren't looking at the big picture of whether or not, you know, these patients who are classified as PAD or, you know, whatever they are, um, are really on equal footing when it comes to uh, the treatments they're getting. Yeah, that's a great point because like you said before, Dr. Mattisari, I think in IR, we have a lot of these small groups of patients that we treat really well. We have great follow-up on. And, and in some ways like HCC patients, right? They're almost like a protected group of patients that there's always good follow-up on. And you know we have all these studies, but there's so many patients out there like you said, with peripheral arterial disease that are never treated, right? That are never seen. I mean, like Mike was pointing out, I mean, I think something like less than 50% of those with a major amputation had an angiogram. And also, you know, when it's wild. there's a 40, 50% death rate at four years, once they get diagnosed CLI, that's worse than most of the cancers. Like we've talked about a lot of things, a lot of presentations. I mean, that's, that's going to have to get up to the ranks of Medicare and government to make an impact. Um, you yeah. really start, you know, adjusting who's doing what reimbursement based you know, outcomes-based reimbursement. That's where it has to get to for people to really take notice. And I think like Mike's talking about the CLI Global Society, all these other groups that are working on these things, we have to work together to, to really make an impact starting with, you know, our colleagues in, you know, in medicine, the, the primary doctors, the podiatrists and all that, you know, we have to work with them to, to really start finding these patients. Yeah. And there's something that I want to discuss with you guys as well is, is limb preservation. It's something that, you know, as I've learned about amputation as I'm 
medical student, I didn't really think about it a lot. But I've mentioned this before, I think even on the podcast that my grandpa had an above knee amputation, I think it was about a year and a half, two years ago now. Long story short, there was a vascular issue that wasn't known before surgery. And it led to some issues where he had to have an amputation. And, and now that I've seen that in my own family and the impact of an amputation on a person, you know, that was otherwise healthy, or even, you know, with just some specific issues, it changes their entire life. And, you know, you mentioned the mortality rates with PAD in general, but then you look at mortality rates for those that have had amputations. And it's scary, you know, even for me thinking about my grandfather. And so knowing that now on a personal level, I think a lot of the things you mentioned before about limb preservation, what what efforts at, at meetings like AMP are being done to try and change our outlook on amputations nationally or even just at these meetings? You know, I've seen definitely a lot of interest. Uh, one of our multidisciplinary colleagues, Paul Michael out in Florida, he's doing a lot of research on, you know, the differences in CLI and amputation and access to care in different ethnic groups. And that's happening here in Chicago with Arsenal's doing the same thing and other places. And mm. I think there's gonna be a bigger push to try to get legislative and governmental authorities to be a part of this. There's people that Mike probably knows as well that are going to DC to try and work on this as well, to try and make kind of a, a stance to say, hey, we need help. We need help in, you know, in the in the primary care and the medical system to kind of get to these patients. I think that's a change we got to see is, you know, is helping all of us find them, get them into the system, make sure they're in a good system. That's the other hard part that we're talking about. You know, there's multiple facets of this, but I think uh, it's, it's finally taking a little bit of notice and I think it has to go a lot further. You know, one of, one of the things that I'm really seeing, which is, I think is uh, promising, is the involvement of podiatrists. Mm. So if you're a primary care doctor or a cardiologist um, or, you know, whatever you are, general surgeon, um, if you have a patient who loses a leg, you still have a patient. They just don't have a leg. Yeah. If you're a podiatrist, you don't have a patient. Exactly. Uh, you know, I, I think limb preservation is extremely important to podiatrists, and they're starting to learn what vascular options are available. I work very closely with a podiatrist in Philadelphia who, almost like Rain Man, if you give him a zip code, he can spit out the amputation rates. Wow. He knows it all broken down to zip code and he knows exactly where these zip codes are. And he knows, you know, the vascular interventionalists and, and who the, the hospital affiliations and, and where people are referred. And he's extremely passionate about going to, you know, local legislation and, and doing everything he can to try to get awareness and make this better. And I, I think that that really is, is going to be the passion that helps because you know, as much as, as we love going to these meetings um, and you ask, you know, what's being done at these meetings for limb preservation, I mean, you know, you get a bunch of surgeons, cardiologists, and, and interventional radiologists at a limb preservation meeting, and it can be like an echo chamber. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, we all say, ah, we hate amputation. And I don't, you know, I don't want any of my patients to get amputated. Let's prevent amputation. And we all pat each other on the back and say, all right, we're going to prevent amputation. And that's, you know, that's in our own little bubbles. But I, I think, you know, the outreach, and I really do see it from, from well-educated, young and aggressive podiatrists, I think, you know, in addition to the rest of us, is really going to be helpful. That's awesome. I don't know about you, Adam, but my experience in medical school is, I'd just say that there's no exposure to podiatry and, and the role they play in a multidisciplinary perspective of medicine. I don't know if at Miami, you guys have had a different experience, but that's been my experience at least. I'll have to get back to you. I'm actually pretty excited to to head back for this next semester. I have <laughs> four weeks of vascular surgery coming up, actually. So this is a good little intro perspective-wise. But that's a good thing for trainees to also ask for. 
Um, now that there's all this dissemination information, like we're having this conversation, that's things that you should be asking for if you think they benefit you. And that's something we should work on on the academic level too. Mm-hmm. Um, all working together, we have you know a lot of journal clubs with our podiatry residents and vascular uh, fellows and IR fellows together. So awesome. those are things that we should be espousing everywhere and kind of training so that when you get out there, you know how to work with each other. You all have the same goal and you know that there's tons of patients to work together on. That's a great perspective. Dr. Matasseri, you mentioned earlier the, the drug eluting stents and, and sort of this, the future of the devices for peripheral arterial disease. What impact have those devices had already? You know, you mentioned the balloons, but specific to the stenting. Uh, with the drug eluting steps. I think Mike might have mentioned this earlier, but you know, a lot of the things that we do in CLI, we're borrowing a lot of equipment from other parts of the body, the coronary. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the tibial stuff that we do, pedal stuff that we do, we're using wires, balloons, catheters that were originally developed for working in the coronaries. And luckily, you know, size-wise that works out. But I think um, as we're seeing a shift a little bit in industry, we're seeing more money and research and trials being put into specifically indicated tibial pedal equipment. So I think um, one of the things we're seeing, like we're talking about the upcoming, you know, self-expanding drug eluting tibial stents, which currently we don't like to stent in that area if you don't have to. It's a foreign body, you know, uh, we're using coronary stents uh, as a reason, but now we're coming out with a plethora, not a plethora, but at least a decent sampling of stents that are coming out now. So I think that's going to help us quite a bit when you have, you know, lesions that you just feel, you want to stent, you know, kind of higher up in the, in the, in the below the knee area. And as another option, other than just ballooning and ballooning, whether or not you use atherectomy first. So at least in terms of devices and equipment, that's coming. Also, you know, it's kind of a elephant in the room right now, but the the drug coated balloons as well that are coming out in Europe, they've already had it, but coming out in the U.S., it's under a little bit of controversy with the latest big paper that came out. There was a review article that Mike can <laughs> probably also feel the impact of right now. <laughs> it, it's very controversial. Everybody's probably reading about it, and I think there's a lot more to to look into it and learn about before you know, we change our approach to anything. It's unfortunately caused a lot of trials to kind of put on halt right now until we find out more. So the, the drug technology is being utilized a lot. And now there's a little bit of caution in it. We just don't know where to go with it. But the good thing is that we can all talk together and start working on patient selection for this stuff. That's awesome. So you mentioned that paper. And I know there's the upcoming um, conference ISET, which you know, there's a lot of endovascular talk at that, and I imagine that and other things will be discussed at ISET. Is that a place where you've seen a lot of a lot of learning, a lot of education as an opportunity for trainees or even for attendings? I'd say ISET and also Viva every year. I, Mike was there with me this year, um, and my, he's been there. Was I? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I was. Viva, Viva is a fantastic uh, vascular focus conference in Vegas every year. Yeah, oh, in cool. Vegas. That's a problem. It's one week long. It's Now there's a Venus component too, and it's literally late-breaking trials. Actually, Dr. Watts had a late-breaking trial that he was able to do like a press release on. Um, everybody that does and interventional um, uh, endovascular work from around the world actually comes to Viva as well. There's live cases, uh, tons of tons of presentations and talks and hands-on courses. So that as well as ISET, as well as um, Upcoming Learn and AMP are all kind of great heavy hitters for focusing on PAD and CLI. Um, and I think those are underutilized by the IR community, but I do see a growth that's happening in participation. So one of the questions I wanted to ask while we're on this topic of devices and and research. I've recently heard about technology for endovascular venous uh, arterial bypass. Deep vein, deep vein arterialization? Yes. So I understand that there's the use of that with fistulas, but there's also 
with peripheral arterial disease. Can you touch on that at all and what that is and where that technology is at? Uh, not, I just, I just learned it from you guys on Twitter. So, uh. yeah. I mean, so basically, you know, <laughs> Mike's just joking. But, um, <laughs> so basically the, the premise is that as we do more and more below the knee, below the ankle arterial interventions, we're finding that there are patients that, you know, obviously in the past you say, oh, no option patients, which we found is not true. And we work harder, but there are some patients that have truly what we call like a desert foot, meaning that I love desert foot. I know it's a tough one. There's no, there's no direct main, one of the three main vessels, which is your anterior, posterior, perineal arteries that are going into the foot. So you have basically all just collateralized branches. So when you have to heal a wound below the ankle, you need a direct flow. And if you have no real branch to connect to, they call it what we call a desert foot. And some people like Mike, who can go crazy, and you know, some of us <laughs> will try to stick a tiny artery, you know, the safari technique and try to open it. But even though sometimes you don't have it. So what they decided was even, you know, decades ago, they've done similar procedures surgically was why not take the venous system in the foot and connect an artery to it, just like you do for dialysis to a different degree and reverse the flow in the vein since those are still there and make them become kind of like a capillary perfusion system for the foot. So, you know, there is a device out there called Limflow that's in trials and being utilized. However, you know, there are interventionalists, uh, including many that we know in the Twitter world that you can do it without that whole device system. Uh, it's being entertained. We don't know a lot about the long-term outcomes of it, what to expect from it. But in a patient that otherwise faces a BKA or an AKA, uh, as long as you talk to everybody in the patient, you aren't really losing a lot by trying it because you, if anything, you might save their foot their, and keep them at at least a transmit instead of a, a full major amputation. It's kind of what I mentioned before. You know, you know the disease process, you know the plumbing, you know the tools. So, you know, if you can MacGyver things a little bit, Kumar's probably talking about um, Sabine Don has done more than one of these. And if you understand the plumbing that you're trying to achieve, and, you know, you can use reentry devices to go from artery to vein, you can use covered stents, you know, stent grafts to create a conduit. And, you know, there, there are other things you have to worry about as far as, you know, what, which way the valves, um, you know, restrict blood flow and how to deal with that. But you can make it work. And just, you know, just like Kumar just said, you know, it's, involves making sure everybody's on board and saying this is the last resort thing we're going to try it and you know you go for it um so that's one of the the ways to be innovative the other thing i think about devices just to add you know kind of my other you know two cents is i think that you know imaging and 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 um and outcome measurements really are are what's going to be next i mean yeah we can get smaller balloons yeah we can get you know a different um drug mixture or, or, or elution technology or polymer. But Ivis has changed the way I do things um, in, in almost every case. Today, you know, I, I, I had some time in a case and uh, I had a guy who had, you know, maybe like a one and a half centimeter popliteal occlusion. You know, he had a, uh, he had a non-healing ulcer on his toe and I was able to go sub in someone to get across it. But I realized with Ivis that I was probably about four centimeters more sub than I needed to be. So I was able to actually use the IVIS and, and use a bunch of different wires to get myself true lumen where I wanted to be, where I only had to treat a very small portion of the lesion, didn't have to cross the knee uh, with a stent, which I didn't want to do. So IVIS changes a lot of things. Um, and, you know, it, it, can, it can measure outcomes where you can look, you can find things that were, that were occult you didn't know about. You know, as we look for contrast blush in wound beds and stuff like that, I think we need better ways of, of really quantifying that whether it be 
perfusion pressures or, or um, some sort of contrast perfusion measurement, the s- systems we have now are, are not all that advanced. So, you know, there, there are other things that can improve outcomes rather than just, just plumbing tools. And I think that that needs to be something that we really start to, to grasp and standardize as well. Yeah, there's, a, there's a, a use of that as well for preventative. Before things get too bad, you can have a much better measurement to know, okay, this is the level of stenosis or, or flow limitation that this patient is at. And you can catch these patients five years earlier or 10 years earlier. Oh, the amount of blood flow that you need to keep a foot attached is significantly less than you need to, to heal a wound. Right. So, so that's, you know, the, well, that, that's what I tell patients all the time. You know, I'll, I'll, you know, they'll have a completely occluded tibial and I'll open it up and I'll talk to them after and say, well, how long will this stay open? So, well, as long as it takes to heal the wound, right. um, hopefully, you know, it might be, may only be a couple months, but if the wound heals, we're happy. So, well, if it doesn't stay open, is the wound going to come back? And the answer really is no. Um, you know, the amount of oxygen and the, the perfusion pressure of oxygen that you need to heal a wound is significantly higher than just to keep intact skin, uh, intact, skin uh, intact. So once that wound is healed, even if that, that vessel occludes again, you know, as long as that wound doesn't recur from some traumatic issue or, or non-healing or infection, you know, you're going to be okay. So that's, like you said, prevention is, is, is definitely key in, in a lot of these patients. You know, who don't know how bad their, their perfusion really is. Hmm. That's a great point because when people worry about, oh, you know, when we first started getting more and more into CLI is, you know, well, what's the long-term patency? Honestly, we don't really care. The long-term patency is as long as it takes for that wound to heal. Yep. Ah. That's what matters because that's what's going to kill them if that wound doesn't heal and they get kind of progressively, you know, cephalad amputation. That's when you kind of screw with the patient's screwed. Yeah. So I, you know, and I think that's what Mike makes a great point. When we talk to a patient, we tell them, listen, we'll do whatever it takes and as many times as we have to get this to heal. Because if we don't, that's what matters. Not if it's open five years from now, because we want to make sure you're still open five years from now. <laughs> that's, my background has been in vascular surgery research. And a lot of that, those long-term patency outcomes are things that were sort of like, you know, bashed into my brain as I, I worked on my manuscripts and stuff. But, but just the way that you guys stated that almost just blew my mind. <laughs> but it's true. You know, it's when you're treating the patient, it doesn't matter how long the vessel stays open if you get rid of their symptoms, if you save the limb. Correct. That wound is kind of the, the make or break situation for what's going to happen in their, their longevity in the next five years, you know? Wow. So we, need to get, we just need to do whatever it takes to, to get that to heal. And that, that requires, you know, managing the other comorbidities that, you know, Mike is talking about that requires aggressive wound care, which everyone who practices it should have some understanding of and, and, go through the training for wound care to understand the basics and work well with their podiatrist and make sure just like you want your podiatrist and surgeon and cardiologist to trust you, you have to trust them as well and work for the patient. Mm. If you have a patient with a wound and you, you know, give them three vessel runoff, you know, with a, with an intact PETA loop and their hemoglobin A1C is 10.6 and they're not on a statin, you know, you're not doing your job. Correct. You're just not. It's all, it's much more complex than, than just the plumbing. And that's something that you know, with education, we're all learning. That's amazing. I think that's a great place for us to, there's a lot of different directions we could take this. And we've discussed previously of just starting a series on, on vascular IR. Adam, were there any other questions you wanted to ask? No, I agree. I think that was a great way to, to finish up, you know, summarizing, looking at the patient as a whole and, and how complex this disease is and how much prevention is important and how much, you know, how the research needs to be focused going forward. Mm-hmm. Do either of you have any last points you'd like to make? Any 
pearls you'd like to leave for our trainees and medical students about CLI? I think all I'd like to say is that, you know, I think the, the future is promising if, uh, if the interest is there, as a lot of us are trying to, trying to build this practice and topic and education. And, you know, you should seek it out. You should learn about it. And you should ask, why aren't we doing this? Or how do I get this involved in this? And I think, uh, I think we have a lot more to do, but I think at least we're making some, some groundwork here. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I think um, just to echo that, I think there's there's a lot to learn in, in this disease process and and to pair it with the, the new kind of frontiers in, in IR education. I mean, who knows if there's going to be uh, specialization, you know, in IR, everybody's going to do their IR residency. But, you know, if there's if there's a, a chance to do, you know, further training and specialization and, and, and to do you know, vascular IR is kind of like an IR residency fellowship type thing. Um, you know, there's more than enough to spend, you know, a year learning this stuff uh, or however long, six months built into your IR residency or something. There's so much, so much to know that you just don't get until you're out there doing it. Who knows? Maybe maybe there's uh, an avenue for that uh, and maybe some program will take that up. But I, I think that, you know, there's so much of this stuff to learn and, you know, I, I only know, you know, a small piece of it and, and it's what I've, you know, kind of learned myself and learned at meetings and, and Kumar's got, you know, a different perspective and, and different skill set and has different experiences. But I think what Mike points out, though, is that despite different uh, training, different exposure, we both are passionate about it. Therefore, we try to try to get to the upper limits and push the limits and kind of are learning a lot in the process from each other. You got it. Yeah, I love that. And hopefully us and our listeners can join in that learning and, you know, further the care of this giant group of patients that need this care. So we appreciate both of you appreciate coming on the pod today and joining us to discuss critical ischemia. Yeah, sincerely appreciate you guys taking the time and glad to see people are passionate about this and sorry to Mike for the Raiders. <laughs> oh, man. I, hey, one question I did want to ask. So you guys mentioned the CLI Global Society. Yeah. If there's things students want to do to get involved, you know, if they have a passion for critical ischemia, is that a society that's a good thing to get involved in to help with like the legislation or things like that? It's a super new kind of society. So I think there's a lot of directions that it can go. But again, it, it's kind of spearheaded by Jihad Mustafa and, and some people who are really, and, and Barry Katz and, and you know, Rob Lickstein, who are really extremely passionate about it. Um, so yeah, it's definitely a place, you know, to, to be involved. Um, because I, I think it is a place where, you know, there's really going to be some activism and, and some results, you know, it's one of many places to get involved. But yeah, it's definitely worth looking into. I mean, they're on Twitter. I'll see that global society. Yeah. And you can just go to the website and you can learn about, you know, how to get involved and all that. I think we're all part of it. And we're recommending all disciplines to get involved because that's how we can increase our power is by getting everybody from all specialties, especially the training involved. Yeah. We'll definitely uh, leave links for that and the other conferences that were mentioned um, in the show notes this uh, episode. But thank you both again for taking the time to join us today. I'll thank you. Thanks so much for your time, guys. It's good talking to you. That's it for this episode. Please keep an eye out for our upcoming episodes this season, where we'll be discussing the interventional radiology interview trail, interventional oncology, and more. If you have any questions or feedback, we would love to hear from you. If you're a practicing IR who would like to get involved with the podcast, please contact us at our email address, thesoundofir, all one word, at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter. We're at the underscore sound underscore of underscore IR. If you've enjoyed this episode, please feel free to leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or any of your favorite podcast apps. See you next time.